coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS Podcast. Our guest today is Ann Tucker, here to talk with us about the role of the clinical pharmacist in ensuring medication safety for patients receiving parenteral nutrition. Ann is a clinical pharmacy specialist in critical care nutrition support at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry, biochemistry from the University of Arkansas and her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, where she also completed her residency training. Areas of interest include fluid and electrolyte disorders, nutrition support in critically ill cancer patients, and the promotion of safe parenteral nutrition practices. She is active in the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, also known as ASPEN, and has done numerous ASPEN webinars and platform presentations to enhance nutrition support knowledge and improve patient safety. And thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell us more about yourself and what led you to focus your professional energy on PN safety. Okay, I'll start when I was in college and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with my professional life. And pharmacy was always on my radar. I had a pretty strong background in chemistry and decided my strengths would be a good fit in pharmacy. And quite honestly, pharmacists appeared to have a pretty good quality of life. So it was a win-win. So I applied to pharmacy school and was accepted. At that time, I was really most familiar with retail pharmacy and knew that there were pharmacists that worked in hospitals. I really had no idea the scope of things that pharmacists could be involved in. And so I look back and I remember in my third year of pharmacy school, I was introduced to nutrition support by a clinical faculty. Her name was Karen King, who was board certified in nutrition support and worked on the trauma team. I'd always had an interest in nutrition. I prided myself in eating healthy, exercising regularly, um, and was very excited to find out that I could be involved in this area as a pharmacist. So she took me under her wing during my clinical rotations and residency training, and she introduced me to Aspen. She introduced me to nutrition support guidelines, PN management, what a nutrition support pharmacist was and how they fit into the nutrition support team. And she also gave me my first exposure to home TPN and seeing home TPNs in clinic. I knew at that time that I wanted to be a nutrition support pharmacist. And so a few years after completing my residency, I ended up in Houston, where I had my dream job of being a clinical pharmacy specialist in critical care and nutrition support at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And here I started taking care of patients um, that had a very high risk of malnutrition or were already presenting with malnutrition and had conditions that frequently required nutrition support provision. So I got a lot of experience. I quickly realized that 
these patients also had a lot of concurrent therapies, which made providing PN a little more challenging. They had long medication lists, frequently had limited IV access, and a whole new host of treatment-related complications. Now, as a pharmacist, medication safety is always at the forefront of your mind. And now that I was so involved in inpatient and home PN management in this complex patient population, I became very interested in PN safety and what I could do to make an impact. So joining Aspen, it allowed me to become more involved locally and nationally on education related to safe PN provision and just educating others on complications associated with PN, such as fluids, electrolytes, and acid-based disorder management. I've been fortunate to have been able to serve on the PN Safety Committee, the Aspen Board of Directors, and I've also been involved in the development of the refeeding syndrome recommendations, um, as well as other webinars involving PN safety. So I'm very grateful for my mentors and, and the colleagues that I've worked with who've helped me throughout my years um, and throughout my career. I don't, I wouldn't be here without them. And in your opinion, how risky is PN compared to other medication therapy types? Um, that's a really good question. So there's multiple ways to look at PN risk. And from a general standpoint, I would say PN is definitely higher risk compared to something like just basic IV fluids or IV antibiotics, mostly because it's a much more complex formulation. Um, the Institute of Safe Medication Practices or ISMP considers PN a high alert medication since it contains concentrated electrolytes, multiple additives, and has an increased risk for errors at all parts of the PM process. So ordering, order review and verification, compounding, and administration. And when you think about it, additives such as sodium and potassium, insulin, and the different macronutrients, when not appropriately dosed and monitored, can lead to very severe or even fatal consequences. Um, and we all know that the addition of Calcium to a PN containing phosphate presents the potential for incompatibilities and precipitation if dosed inappropriately. And we know this through the fact that there were there have been reports of multiple cases of respiratory failure and death found to be due to calcium phosphate precipitation in PNs, which prompted the FDA in 1994 to place a safety alert. When we think of like total nutrient admixtures or things like we call TNAs or three-in-one PNs, um, they have the risk of IV lipid emulsion destabilization. Um, so you have to really review closely the final concentration of macronutrients of the PN as well as the dosing of monovalent and divalent cations, especially calcium and magnesium, because those uh, place the PN or the TNA at, at very high risk for lipid destabilization. Errors also frequently occur during PN administration, so nursing education is very important. Um, and due to limited compatibility data, parenteral nutrition or PN requires a dedicated central line for the most part. Um, and there are also specific recommendations related to the use of IV tubing and filters and, and administration sets with PN. 
Now, if you want to look at risk, as we think about it with as pharmacists um, in a different way, um, you can look through the lens of the United States Pharmacopeia or the USP 797 recommendations, which considers most PN formulations to be medium risk as it relates to compounding because the process requires multiple injection of nutri nutritional products or it requires the use of a device like a compounder to deliver all the nutritional components to the P of the PN to a final sterile container. There are very few instances where PN would be considered high-risk compounding, and those involve the use of non-sterile components, which have to be sterilized prior to dispensing, which doesn't, like I said, occur very often at all. Why is this so important? This really sets the beyond-use dating for PN formulations. Um, and the beyond use date refers to the last date and time that a PN or any compounded medication for that matter um, can be safely administered to a patient. And so beyond use dating is kind of similar to an expiration date, which looks at physical and chemical stability, but it also adds in that consideration of sterility or that whole potential for contamination of the product during the compounding process. Does risk level vary depending on the care setting, meaning ICU patients versus home care, et cetera? As a pharmacist, I, like I said, I kind of think of risk levels relevant to P and compounding, um, which is the same for inpatient and home care settings because PN requires compounding in the pharmacy clean room under aseptic conditions. Uh, prior to dispensing to the patient for administration. I think when I think of the risk level, I mainly think of the administration risk that you see in different care settings. So in the hospitalized patient versus the home care, the home care setting. PN administered in the hospital or even in the ICU is, is done by a trained and licensed nurse. And PN is dispensed in its final form and is ready for administration. And the nurses have annual competencies that must be documented, like I said, on a yearly basis. But PN administration in the home setting is either by the patient or the caregiver. And this frequently requires the need for adding things like IV multivitamin. Your patients may have famotidine in their home TPNs, and therefore they have to add that famotidine to their home PN formulation. And they may have other vitamins that just don't have a, a lot of good prolonged stability data. And so those would have to be added too. And so through education and training, you have to provide to the home PM patient and their caregivers involved in, in administration. You need to do that prior to and continued after discharge so that they can safely administer their home PN. And education should involve how to identify that unstable or unsafe PN for administration. Like I said, how to add those IV medications and nutrients to the bag, how to do a dressing change, how to flush their central venous catheter and then really how to identify those complications that they might have 
that would require a higher level of care. So when do they need to call the doctor? When do they need to come to the emergency room? Those types of things. And so when we're dealing with an inpatient who is going to go home on PN, um, we start doing this education early. And this allows us to be able to screen for a safe home environment, making sure the patients have ample support and looking for any potential compliance issues along with teaching them, you know, the steps for what they need to do to, to keep them safe. What are the most common types of PN-related medication safety events? Oh, great question. I'm glad you asked this because I was fortunate to be involved in a collaborative study with CAPS and Aspen looking exactly at this. Uh, I'll take a few minutes to discuss what we did and the things that we found but our PN safety study was developed to take a deeper dive into describing the types of PN prescriptions and interventions that were required in a large national data set. And ours was the largest that's been published at a little over 37,000 um, PN prescriptions. Uh, we were looking at correlating pharmacist interventions with characteristics of the prescribing facilities, and then looking and analyzing that data to identify if there was any site of care population differences. And we did this over a 30-day time period. So there was all the, the PM prescriptions that were transmitted um, with customers that had given cons consent. And we looked at a lot of different things to try to tease out you know, what were the in interventions and could we find areas that we could recommend for improvement? Um, most patients were adult patients, but we did have a, a pretty good amount of neonatal patients and, and, and a little bit fewer pediatric patients. Uh, most patients that we screened prescriptions on or that prescriptions were screened on were from the hospital setting. Um, but we were able to get some data on um, those alternate care sites like LTAX and home care. Um, when looking at where the prescriptions came from, it was equally distributed across four defined regions of the country. So like the Northeast, Midwest, South and West. And we felt like because things were so well divided and we had a good representation of different care sites and patient populations that it this study would have a really good external validity for kind of what was going on across the US. Now there were out of that, those 30, about 37,000 PM prescriptions, um, the top 248 individual PM prescriptions required intervention by a pharmacist. And the top three interventions included electrolyte dosing clarification, amino acid clarification, and calcium phosphate incompatibility. Um, now, not all of these required a prescription change because many of the calcium phosphate uh, limits um, varied from institution to institution. So while they were identified through the CAPS database, um, depending on what the institution's limits were, some of them didn't require changing. Um, 53 out of the 248 interventions led to changes in the PM prescription and neonatal orders were the most common patient type requiring a change. 
Um, 33 interventions were for clarifications of nutrient doses and insulin doses, nine related to peripheral PN osmolality limits, four for calcium phosphate incompatibility concerns, and one for amino acid dose clarifications. And I want to just state that the low number of interventions, because it may not sound like there were a lot, but this was because um, the CAPS pharmacists were the second review um, as they are an outsourcing compounding pharmacy. And the customers stated that 97% of the customers already had a first review done of the PM prescription before it was transmitted to them. And so we concluded that our study supports the need for at a minimum a double check during the PN order entry and verification process by skilled and knowledgeable pharmacists because there were still some interventions that needed to be made after one review of, of those certain PN prescriptions and that institutional PN competency training and annual checkoffs can help meet, meet this benchmark. Now, our interventions that were noted, um, we didn't, obviously, from the way it was designed to capture the serious events that can that can be caused by PN errors because we were more um, concurrent study. Um, and I think it's important to briefly discuss what can happen when these PN errors make it through. And so Dr. Jay Mertallo reported on isolated PN errors that occurred between 1992 and 2007 uh, indicated that PN errors are very low in frequency, but when errors occurred, they were likely to cause permanent or severe harm. And so these were things like calcium phosphorus incompatibilities resulting in precipitation, glucose dosing errors, overdoses, and several different uh, micronutrients resulting in significant morbidity and death. Um, Cohen and colleagues reported on data obtained from the ISMP medication error reporting program and found that errors were involved um, most commonly during the ordering process, the transcribing process, and administration, and that all ingredient classes uh, were involved in error, errors with the lipids and electrolytes and insulin being the most problematic. Um, and it's important to note this because the PN safety recommendations recommend to eliminate that transcription step. So it's by allowing that direct communication of the PN prescription electronically to the pharmacy and the compounder uh, within the pharmacy. And so a lot of work has been undertaken by pharmacists and institutions to get to have better options for PN order management in electronic order entry system. So there's just a lot of work that's been going on and, and a lot of the EMRs are, are really, you know, being advocated or we're advocating to make these modules within these programs to be robust for PM prescriptions. And reports and publications such as these help guide professionals um, in developing and updating PN safety recommendations to streamline clinical practice. So if you come across a PN error that occurs at your institution, it's greatly encouraged that that be reported so that we can know that there might be a problem or a process problem out there that, that can be addressed. So don't hold back on those. 
Well, thanks for that explanation. And I, th I think you've made a really strong argument for the riskiness associated with parenteral nutrition. But what else are pharmacists doing behind the scenes to protect our patients that, you know, the, the dietitian may not realize is happening on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a great question. So pharmacists are behind the scenes doing a lot of things to enhance PN safety. I can give you examples of what we do here. Um, all of our pharmacists involved in PN management, whether it be ordering or compounding, dispensing, um, go through the Aspen PN safety webinar series and are familiar with the PN safety recommendations. Um, our pharmacists perform rigorous or order review and verifications using a standardized checklist to ensure a full clinical and pharmaceutical review occurs on each PN order. Um, they do stability and compatibility checks following USP 797 recommendations, and there are double checks during both order verification and after compounding, just to make sure that there aren't any discrepancies or anything that needs to be clarified prior to uh, dispensing to the patient. Um, we have annual competency education and checkoffs, and pharmacists are encouraged, obviously, to do continuing education related to PN management as well as PN safety. Oh, and I almost forgot, um, pharmacists are also monitoring for drug shortages and coming up with plans when drug shortages occur, um, which has affected us for many years now uh, with different PM products. Uh, one of the most recognized examples of this is changing IV multivitamin and PNs from daily to Monday, Wednesday, Friday during um, the multivitamin shortage that we've been experiencing. Um, the FDA and American Society for Health System Pharmacists or ASHP uh, both have comprehensive online drug shortage lists readily accessible to all clinicians. So you can, you know, Google or enter in your search bar FDA drug shortages or ASHP drug shortage list, and the links to the web page come up number one. So if you're ever wondering what's going on or is something still on the shortage list, um, that, those are two good places to start. And Aspen has a list of PN-related drug shortages and drug shortage recommendations on their PN resources page. So they actually provide some guidance as to what to do if, if your institution is experiencing drug shortages. Does the pharmacist involvement vary depending on the state in which you practice? That's a, a, that's a good question. I'm not sure I fully can answer all of that, but I, I can say that since PN is considered a medication. Uh, pharmacists are involved in multiple steps of the PN prescriptions, including in some cases order entry, um, for sure in order review and verification and the compounding and labeling and dispensing of the, the parenteral nutrition formulation. Um, I would say that the pharmacist involvement within the ordering of PN is really dependent on state and institutional regulations or policies. Uh, we have a specific institutional policy that allows um, the pharmacist, the clinical pharmacist and nutrition support to order and manage PN through a nutrition support team consult that the physician signs. So then our nutrition support team, which is 
the pharmacist and dietitians um, can manage those patients and the pharmacist is allowed to um, enter those orders in per protocol. I will say that if you're interested in learning more about what nutrition support pharmacists do, I would encourage you to review the 2015 Standards of Practice for Nutrition Support Pharmacists that was published in Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Uh, I was the chair of that standards group, and I can assure you that it is a comprehensive overview that provides everything um, about what a nutrition su support pharmacist should do. So it ranges from criteria for recognition as one, it goes through all the responsibilities and the PN use process, and it ends with, you know, the responsibility for advancement of the profession, research and ethics, those types of things. Um, and there are board certification opportunities related to nutrition support for pharmacists. So um, pharmacists can sit for the CNSC credential through the MBNSC. Um, and or they can become board certified in either nutrition support or compounded serial preparations or both if they want for that matter um, through the board of pharmacy specialties. So there are a lot of different ways that pharmacists can get involved in PN practice and uh, a lot of it depends on their actual position description or and their probably their goal practice aspirations. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned the standards of practice for on the pharmacy side, because we have a very similar document for nutrition support dietitians that DNS partnered with Aspen a couple of years ago to revise. And I was actually one of the authors on that document. Um, and there's a lot of interdisciplinary collaboration mentioned as well. So not just evaluating quote unquote hard skills of the dietitian, but also those softer skills of knowing when to collaborate and who, you know, who those go-to people are with, of course, a pharmacist being one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I believe the same as in ours too. What are your other go-to resources for PN safety related information? So in addition to primary literature, which sometimes we have to just you know, start looking up everything. Um, I frequently use the PN safety recommendations, including the old um, PN safety recommendations from 2004, which is, was a much larger document. The newer ones are broken up into more smaller pieces. Um, I have a couple handbooks that I keep handy, um, predominantly on fluid and electrolyte and acid-based disorders that every once in a while I'll pull down to work through a complicated patient. And um, I also routinely attend webinars and clinical sessions related to PN at, at annual conferences that I attend just to stay current. And just one more question before we wrap up this episode. What can dietitians in particular do to support the work being done by the pharmacists to protect our patients? That is another great question. Um, I would say staying current having open communication, fostering collaboration with all involved in the care of the patient are really key to taking care and protecting our patients. And we're fortunate to have an established nutrition support team here at MD Anderson. So I completely understand the importance of working alongside dietitians. Uh, on, I work with dietitians every day um, and we, bring each other's specialty and viewpoint to the table to tackle PN management, which I feel 
like I said earlier, really enhances not only PN safety, but supports a high level of care for our patients. So we're not operating in silos. Um, as pharmacists, uh, nutrition-related education in pharmacy school is pretty inconsistent, um, except for fluids, electrolytes, acid-base disorder management, and compounding of sterile products, you know, where PN is, is discussed. So, um, you know, like I said, I was I'm fortunate to um, to have had a board certified nutrition support pharmacist in my uh, pharmacy education, and I've carried that through to my um, teaching at the local pharmacy school here. Um, so I probably got more exposed to nutrition than most people, and that's where working collaboratively collaboratively with a dietitian is so helpful. Um, another thing we do as a team is to educate each other on new tools, uh, literature, recommendations, practice ideas, um, and I encourage everyone to stay active in your professional development and everything you can. So staying active in DNS, uh, Aspen if you're a member, and for us pharmacists, staying active in ASHP. Um, I'm most familiar with what Aspen and ASHP can provide since I'm a pharmacist. Um, just to let you know, both have open access materials related to providing safe PN to their patients, and they both have PN, Parenteral Nutrition Resources page. So you don't have to be a member to be able to access those documents and some of those handy um, video series that they might have. Um, one other thing is I actually was able to work on an interdisciplinary nutrition support certification program that was created by Aspen, or ASHP, um, in conjunction with Aspen. So I was able to work with Ainsley Malone and Chris Mogensen, along with other, you know, nutrition support pharmacists, physicians, and nurses. And the program is really good. It, it includes 12 modules on just general nutrition support topics, including safe practice recommendations for both PN and EN. So it's very thorough and you don't have to be a pharmacist and you don't have to be a member of ASHP to take advantage of the learning opportunities. It's open to everybody. So that's what I think um, is the main thing to where we can all bring together our strengths and collaborate and, and you know do the right thing for our patients. With that, we will conclude today's podcast. Thank you, Anne, so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. Thank you. And listeners, remember to leverage your DNS membership by posting any PN safety-related questions in our forum at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.